This morning we're continuing our journey through uh, life of Israel's greatest king, uh, David, as it's recorded in Second Samuel. David's a real guy. He lived about 3,000 years ago, give or take a few hundred years. And uh, he uh, lived in what we now call Israel. And he was actually instrumental, he was a great general, was instrumental in forming uh, what was a loose family of tribes into a single nation. He was their second king, not their first. Their first was a bit of a disaster. Uh, as the rhyme goes, first the worst, second the best. But I can't comment on whether the third had a hairy chest. When we left David uh, a couple of weeks ago, he was at the peak of his power. He was king of a unified Israel. He'd taken these tribes and formed them into a single country. A bit like a kind of ancient Garibaldi. Uh, for those of you who know your Italian history. Uh, he was rich. He was successful, he had everything he could want, and yet he'd made a series of catastrophic mistakes. When as with many great men, great in inverted commas, once things started to go wrong, they went wrong big time. And he, uh, first he saw and uh, lusted after the wife of one of his soldiers, Bathsheba, and then he sent his men and had her brought to the palace and uh, slept with her uh, in what I think by any definition is an abusive relationship. And uh, she got pregnant, so he decided the only thing to do was to have her husband uh, sleep with her. When her husband wouldn't sleep with her because he wanted to stay with the men on the battlefield, so he slept in a tent in the streets rather than going back to his palace, his sort of stately home, uh, David decided the next best thing was to have him killed. And so he had him killed uh, by having him put into a position in the battle and the battle constructed so that uh, the Uriah would be killed. Uriah was the man's name. And he's a very clever guy, David, you see. It's an interesting. A, there is a worrying lesson there for those of us who are clever. You might be really, really good at your job and you might lose your job and your skill at your job to cover up mistakes in an incredibly skillful way. David did that, no problem. He knew how to manipulate men around a battlefield so that he could predict which of those men would die. Well, that is a brilliant general. Absolutely brilliant general. And yet, he used that skill in a way that brought disaster on himself and his country. So he had Uriah killed at the hands of Israel's enemies, along with a whole load of other people who also died because of this manoeuvre. Then he married Bathsheba, Uriah's widow, had a child, everything's hunky-dory. Or so he thinks. He's not only gone through this whole plan, ingenious as though it is, he's got away with it. The cover-up has been successful. And yet, as we shall see, when we're dealing with God, there is no such thing as a successful cover-up. To paraphrase Bob Marley, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool God any of the time. Every week I give a big summary of the idea we're going to look at, and here is this week's. If you want to write down or remember one thing and then go to sleep because the coffee ran out, here it is. There is nothing... And no one that cannot be restored through Jesus if we're willing to come to God and repent. There is nothing and no one 
nothing and no one. I use those words, they are not hyperbole, I use them advisedly. There is nothing and no one that cannot be forgiven and restored through Jesus if we are willing to come to God and repent. Nothing and no one that can't be restored and forgiven through Jesus if we're willing to come and repent. So let's read this story then. Uh, We're going to be reading from 2 Samuel 12. I don't have loads of time for readings. I I worked out how much time we were spending on readings quite long. So I'm going to, we're going to read half of chapter 12. I will explain what happens in the second half, but we're going to read the main bit. So I'm actually going to start reading from the final verse of chapter 11. If you're interested in following along in a paper Bible, it's on page 315, that's 315. Second Samuel is here, it's about, I don't know what that is, a fifth of the way into the Bible, quarter of the way into the Bible. After the time of mourning was over, David had Bathsheba brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. Now the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he'd bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It it shared his food. It drank from his cup. It even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now David burned with anger against the man. He said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you much more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him. With the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who's close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you've shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die.
And I like to read parallel reading from the Gospels about Jesus. This is what it says in Luke 5, verses 27 to 32. You don't need to worry about turning to it. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It isn't the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And again, St. John explains what Jesus meant. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we pick up this story in the palace. Time of great celebration. You know, a royal child has been born, a royal baby has been born. I imagine the ancient equivalent of ITV News and the BBC were camped outside in Jerusalem, on the grounds, with reporters under tents, craning and talking inanity for three or four hours while they waited to hear the weight of the child. And David is pictured in the palace feeling an enormous sense of relief. His plan had apparently worked. Not only has he seemed to get away with adultery and murder, with the abuse of Bathsheba, but he's come out ahead. He's actually got a new wife whom he's grown to love, and he's got a son. He's like a winner, winner, turkey dinner. This man can do what he likes. And yet, while David could hide his actions from everyone else, it turns out that he could not hide them from God. And so God sent one of David's closest friends and advisors to expose his crimes. I don't know if you, know, if you have ever unpacked how close David and Nathan actually are, but one of David's children is named after Nathan. Right? That is how close they are. Sends him one of his closest friends. So David's best mate, one of his best mates, comes in, and I imagine David is sat there thinking, well, this is wonderful. He's probably got a balloon and some cards. You know, normal new baby stuff. And instead, Nathan comes and he says, David, I've got to tell you about this terrible thing that's happened. And so Nathan's constructed this beautiful parable, all about a rich man who abuses his poor neighbour and uh, the neighbour's sheep, steals and kills his pet sheep. And you might think, why on earth would you pick sheep? But David's a shepherd. Right? Those of you who don't know the story of David, he begins in the humblest beginnings you can. He's in a field in the middle of uh, nowhere, forgotten by everybody, including his family. The only people who remember David lives are the sheep he cares for. So sheep are David's thing. And, and Nathan tells him this story, and he says, look, I want you to, to marvel how this man, this poor man, and how this beautiful little ewe lamb, just like the ones you must have carried, David, just like the ones who are so close to your heart. Just look at the way they were abused by this rich man. So David, a shepherd by upbringing, reacts with the fire of someone who's trying, perhaps just a little too hard, to show that he's for justice and against oppression. 
So you get this moment, this flash of anger. The man must die! And then he thinks, well, that's not actually going to achieve a lot. So the man must die and he must pay back four times what he's taken. David is applying the law. He's applying the law rigorously and without mercy. And actually very often that's how we react. I wonder what it is often that means that we tend to, to be reluctant to show mercy to other people. I am speculating now, but I wonder whether it's the deep-seated but often denied acknowledgement that we need mercy ourselves. That in a sense we try and justify ourselves by how quick we are to condemn others. I thank you God that I am not like him. He deserves to die. He demands the offender make restitution and comments that his abuse and wickedness deserve death. Now David isn't wrong, under the law they do. At this point, however, Nathan turns the tables. I mean, how awkward must this have been? You're standing in your best friend's kitchen, he's just had a new baby. And Nathan turns the tables and reveals that the story he's just told is actually about David. You are the man. You are the man. God knows of his abuse of Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. Things are bleak for David at this point. You see, while stealing a lamb is a very marginal capital offence, murder is very definitely not. The abuse of women is not. The law is, the Jewish law was very, very clear. Things are bleak for David. His actions are going to end up affecting everybody he cares about and lead to his own downfall. However, David does the wisest thing he possibly could in this situation. He owns up immediately to what he's done and seeks forgiveness. Actually, this is what sets David apart from almost everybody else up to this point. Certainly apart from Saul, his immediate predecessor. When confronted with what he's done, David owns it and seeks forgiveness. And so Nathan informs David that God sees his genuine remorse and his desire for forgiveness and removes the sentence from him. He forgives him. The death penalty is not applied. I haven't got time as a lawyer to go on to meditate on what that means for contemporary criminal justice, but I do think it's an interesting point. God looks on David's repentance and does not apply the legal penalty. He removes the sentence of death and forgives him. It's a moment of wonderful grace, beautiful grace, that we're going to dwell on in a moment. And yet there is a tinge of tragedy to it. See, God's law is there to protect the people involved. Not only Uriah, who is obviously already dead, but Bathsheba, and the child that Bathsheba would bear. And Nathan informs David that actually the way that he's behaved towards Bathsheba has resulted in the child he has had being very sick. And tells him that the child's sickness is going to lead to his death. And so there's this moment of poignant tragedy in it as well. We didn't have time to read the end of the story. The child does die. And yet the way God has dealt with David in informing him that actually this is going to happen and that it's under the control of God who loves him and loves the child transforms the way that David sees this event. And so David actually ends up being able to comfort everybody else. If you read on to the end of chapter 12, that's what happens. 
He himself has experienced God's love and mercy and knows that this tragedy is in God's hands. And so he comforts his wife and the rest of his court. It's one of the most significant stories in the Bible. One of the most significant stories in the Bible for a number of reasons. Perhaps most importantly, it is a vivid demonstration of the wideness of God's mercy and his willingness to forgive. Now, to see that more clearly, we're actually going to look at a poem. It's one that David wrote. And uh, that line where David says, I've sinned against the Lord, and Nathan says, the Lord has forgiven you, takes up, I don't know, ten words in in the English Bible. There's actually a long process in which David is going through this and agonising and writing down his thoughts and meditating on what it means for God to forgive. We have that poem as Psalm 51. And I want to look at what it says about God and about us. So if you have a Bible and you want to keep it open somewhere, keep it open at Psalm 51. We're going to read it together now. If you're a guest with us and you're not used to reading this much Bible, um, I'm not going to apologise for it. Actually, this is uh, the Word of God and it is the most comforting and powerful and urgent document that's ever been produced by human hand. And we treasure it. This poem that David wrote in the middle of despair, it's a warrior's poem, is a kind of anatomy of grace, of repentance and forgiveness. It teaches us who God is and how we should come to him. And it explains what God offers to do in response. It shows us how, through the wonder of grace and the pain of repentance, no one is a hopeless case. No one is far from God's mercy and love. And it offers a vision of a life restored and given purpose. So I'm not going to read it all in one go. We're actually going to just work through it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great uh, compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Any journey toward God must begin with God. Any journey towards God must begin with God. If you want to encounter God, if you want to experience the sense of forgiveness and restoration and hope and new life that Heather was talking about earlier and Jesus talked about, first of all, you need to get your thought about God right. God is the centre of our faith, not ourselves. Everything we receive from him is mercy. Everything we receive from him is mercy. We deserve nothing. We have no right to experience forgiveness or goodness. Now you might be going to say to me, Phil, hang on a minute. It's all a little bit medieval. Which of us earned the right to breathe the air that we have? Let alone to be born into the families we are. Or to live in the place that we do. Or to receive, even going a hundred times down the chain, the education we received. Which of us earned it? Which of us earned hearts that beat? Or minds that think? Or a world that produces food or water? 
Which of us earned a universe, we thought about last week, so impossibly unlikely that it's impossible for human minds to calculate exactly how unlikely it is? Which of us earned it? Everything we receive is from God. Everything is mercy, and it's given not because of who we are, or what we can do for Him, but because of who He is. God loves steadfastly. That means He doesn't let go. Unfailingly. That means He's willing to extend mercy to all who will seek it. God is utterly transcendent and good. He is the one uncreated being in and outside this universe. The one necessary person. He owes nothing to anyone. Everything depends upon him. And yet he loves to show mercy to everyone who will seek it. God is love. And that's the only basis upon which we can come to him. This is an enormous challenge for people of our generation. I'm using our generation broadly as speaking of the last 80 years. But but perhaps for my generation particularly. We think that things are owed to us. And this isn't me railing against millennials and oh they're so entitled and all the rest of it. It is a recognition that the way that we think and the way that we speak is framed around the idea that I am owed something. I wrote a year-long dissertation uh, when I was at Cambridge about uh, property as a human right. That was the most fashionable seminar to be in, the human rights seminar. Here's a tip for you if you're doing study at the moment. Join the most fashionable seminar and then pick something no one in that seminar knows anything about. So I went to the human rights one, which was filled with hippie lawyers who sort of sat around smoking hemp all day. And uh, said, well, I want to write about property rights. And they were, oh, that sounds a bit arcane, but okay. So none of them know anything about it. So they had no idea whether it was any good or not. So they could be a great mark. Everything we do is framed around this idea of rights and fairness. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's instinctive. My children do it all the time. My daughter woke me up this morning because she and her brothers had been downstairs naughtily before they were allowed to be downstairs and had turned the TV on and she said, Ben and Sam have watched the end of Indiana Jones and now they won't let me have my choice. It's not fair, Daddy. It's not fair. I said, Abby, what time is it? What do you mean it's not fair? You should be in bed. If I choose to let you watch the TV at all, it's mercy. I'm not decrying these ideas. Right? They have value in working out how we should treat each other. Right? Human rights can be a useful tool for working out how people should treat each other. Right? But we have to recognise that when we come to God, it's no good standing there and saying it's not fair, my rights demand X or Y, because what, what are you talking about? What rights? The transcendent God of the universe doesn't owe us anything, he gives us everything, because he's love. And if you want to experience that love and that mercy, then that, that's the basis upon which you have to come. Don't come to him saying, Daddy, it's not fair. Come to him saying, Daddy, you are a wonderful and gracious and loving Daddy. Please, can I watch Alpha Blocks? That would have got the morning off to a better start. So having accepted who God is, we then need to accept who we are. 
This is what David does in verses 3 to 6. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. And it's sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. Teach me wisdom in the inmost. Uh, teach me wisdom in that secret place, sorry. Now there's a certain amount of poetic license here. Right. This, guy, this guy is one of the most influential songwriters of all time. It would be interesting to see a conversation between him and Paul McCartney. So he has a certain measure of poetic license. You know, you get that sense. You know, ever since my mother conceived me, I've been sinful. You think, well, doing what? But actually, he's expressing something important. David is expressing that there's no point being disingenuous with God or concealing stuff from him. This is the second part of the story. The second part of the story is, uh, from this morning, is that I go downstairs and I find Ben and Sam. And when I find Ben and Sam, uh, I say to them, boys, did you stop Abby watching your programme? And they say to me, well, we wanted to watch football. I say to them, Ben and Sam, what, what time is it now? And they say to me, it's one o'clock. So, well, what time did I say to you, you should come down? They said, well, you said that we could watch it, we could watch Indiana Jones when we woke up in the morning. I said, well, I didn't say that. And so gradually we unpick this chain of events, right, as they little by little try and conceal what they've done from me, right? And eventually I persuade them to admit it. That they have not only come down and done something they knew they weren't allowed to do, they've come down and done something they knew they weren't allowed to do in a way which has upset Abigail. David discovered that there's no point in being disingenuous with God. There's no point covering stuff up from God. God's the judge of all the earth and he's perfectly good and just. We are, to put it mildly, not. We are selfish by instinct, culture and choice. That's what he's getting at when he says, I was sinful from my mother's womb. He's saying, actually I recognise that almost everything I do has these ideas underpinning, that I am sinful by instinct, by culture and by choice. It doesn't mean that he does nothing good, we, we do do good stuff. What it means is that pride and self-interest are always lurking beneath the surface. In short, we need forgiveness, healing and restoration. David comes and he admits this. Again, this is difficult for us to admit. It hurts our pride. It's hard to say this. We like to justify ourselves and explain away our faults. It's the classic non-apology. I'm sorry if some of you think what I did was wrong because I don't think it was wrong at all. Politicians nail this on, particularly in America. Hillary Clinton, I have a go at Donald Trump quite a lot, I have a go at Hillary Clinton. Now she's a past master of this. I'm sorry if you were too thick to understand what I was saying because if you had, you'd realise that I was right all along. Now, well, that doesn't really, I don't really sound like you're sorry at all. It doesn't seem to me like you're actually acknowledging there's anything wrong here at all. It sounds in fact like you're saying you're sorry that I'm the problem. 
We, we do it because it makes us feel good and because we like to feel good. Sometimes we refuse to accept the truth about ourselves because we believe that to acknowledge the problems with our behaviour, our characters or our society, would be to lower our self-esteem and to damage ourselves even further. Now I understand that. That's a, that's a more understandable response. To say, actually, what good would it do to get down on myself? Surely that will just make the problem worse. Especially in a world that's so quick to condemn and so slow to forgive. So quick to condemn and so slow to forgive. I wonder when the various scandals of the last ten years were going on, whether more people would have been willing to own up to what they'd done if they felt like there was any possibility that they would be forgiven afterwards or that there was any way back for them. But we are so judgmental. We are so quick to condemn each other that people are incapable of saying that they did what they did was wrong because it's suicide. You might as well just write your, the rest of your life off. I think that this impulse is understandable, but it is mistaken. Far from harming us, being honest about who we are is necessary and helpful. It's necessary because unless we admit there's a problem, we can never fix it. Unless David comes to God and says, actually, I did what was wrong because I like doing what was wrong. Actually, I shouted at my kids because I'm selfish. And I accept it. And I don't want to be like it anymore. And I'm sorry. You can't fix it if you don't admit it. Otherwise you're like the person who drives along with a rattle in their car they know is the wheel about to fall off but they refuse to go to the garage. And sooner or later the wheel does fall off. You can't fix it unless you're honest about it. It's good because in contrast to our judgmental and hard hearts God is full of unfailing love. He longs not just to remind he longs not to remind us of the stain of our shame but to wash it clean. So how then does he do it? I'm winding up now. Simple answer is Jesus. It's a Sunday school answer. The answer to everything in Sunday school is Jesus. I was once at St. Peter's for a school visit. And uh, the vicar there, the then vicar there, Martin, was doing his best with a group of 90 kids, uh, aged six. And he was talking to them about how um, you get messages from one place to the other. And Sam, who'd learnt his script very well, stuck his hands up. And Martin said, yes, Sam, how how do you get messages from one place to another? And he was going for a message in a bottle, right? He was what Martin was aiming for. Less said about that analogy, the better. Uh, Sam sticks his hand up and says, Jesus. <laughs> or was it God? I thought, I thought, no, that's Sam. Not sure it works quite like that, but okay. How does God do it? The answer is Jesus. Right? David doesn't say this, obviously. He's living about a thousand years before Jesus. So he talks about the law that, that pictured what God's forgiveness looked like for Israel. He, he talks about being cleansed with hyssop. Hyssop's a small shrub, grows in the Middle East. When God was freeing the Jews from slavery in Egypt, you can read about this in, in Exodus, they sacrificed lambs and they ate the lambs. And then they took this bush and made it into a brush. And they dipped the brush into the lamb's blood and painted their doors with it. And the death then didn't visit their house because the lamb had already died instead of them. It was a picture. 
God's not interested in lambs. He has a billion lambs. That's just in Wales. Not interested in lambs. There's one place in the Psalms where people have got so focused on the sacrifice, God's like, actually, do you think I really care about... If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Not that I get hungry. It's not interested in the lamb itself. It's what he's picturing. Someone died in their place. Then later, when Moses gave them laws, he ordered that every time someone was cleansed, healed from a disease, there were certain diseases that got you quarantined from other people and from the tabernacle, so you couldn't go near God and you couldn't go near the other people, right? You're infectious. He said, every time someone's healed by one of these, I want them to come, we're going to go through this ceremony. We'll make the brush with hyssop and we'll dip it in blood and their stuff will be painted with it. And we'll dip it in water and they will be brushed with it. Because I will wash you clean and someone else will die in your place. Cleanse me with hyssop, David says. Now the rituals are meaningless. Right? Don't take away from this psalm that you need to go find a bush and start rubbing yourself with it. They were significant for what they pointed to. So when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Look, everyone look. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what it was all about. David is looking at his life and saying, God, I need you to provide a way for someone to take my place. To bear the punishment I deserve, to cleanse myself. To cleanse me from the sickness of soul that produces such self-centeredness and selfishness in me. And God looks through time and space, past David, past me, past you, and sees Jesus, his perfect son, dying in our place. And he says, all the good that Jesus did is yours. And all the bad that you did is his. And we are cleared. We're cleansed, we're washed, we're purified. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Put my debt on him and give me his credit. We could stop there and that would be good enough to give thanks for all God has done. But David doesn't stop there. He says this, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit. When we come to Jesus, God doesn't just forgive us and cleanse us. He changes us from the inside out. He gives us his own spirit, full of joy and love, of peace, of kindness and goodness and faithfulness, of gentleness and self-control. He fills us with himself. And then he gives us a new purpose. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways, so sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you are our God, my Saviour. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you don't delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. Right? It's, the lamb's not the point. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. You are saved, my friends, to bring praise and worship to God. We are saved to show the work of God by doing that work in the world, by being peacemakers, by being lovers of humanity, by going into our workplaces and standing up to bullying bosses, by going into the school gates and refusing to gossip with our friends, by going into the school playground and putting an arm around the child who is weak and nurtured and being beaten up by others, by going into the society we live in and advocating for the weakest and the poorest. We are there to do good because God is good. By forgiving as we've been forgiven. And by explaining to other people what it is that Jesus has done for us. How should we respond then?
First, there's no one who can't receive God's grace, forgiveness and restoration. No one. God's love and Jesus' work is more than big enough for all. So if you are labouring with guilt and fear and shame today for things that may have happened years ago or may have happened this morning, God's word to you is come and say you're sorry and seek forgiveness. If you never have been, repent and be baptised and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Second, everyone needs a Nathan. We need people who will challenge us and tell us the truth, even when, perhaps especially when, we don't want to hear it. That's why we meet in small groups. So we can develop relationships of trust, vulnerability and honesty that allow us to grow and be healed. If you're regularly a part of this church, you don't have a relationship with a life group or another small group, I strongly encourage you to seek it out. You need someone who will call you on it. Who will say, you are the man or you are the woman. Now let's put it right together. Finally, you might have been experiencing or experience right now something of the tragic results of human action. I don't want to get away from that. David experienced this forgiveness from God. He experienced this joy, this peace, and yet his actions had terrible consequences. By abusing Bathsheba, murdering her husband and covering it up, he has caused his son to grow ill, to develop badly in the womb. And he has to live with that. He has to live with that. God doesn't change. God doesn't take away all the consequences of living in a, in a fallen world. In a broken world. We still have to live with them. You know, my own family at the moment is experiencing tragedy and hardship. In my 20s, as I... Uh, grew. There was a period where for five years I lost a member of my family or one of my young friends every year. We live in a world that is broken and suffering. What God does is to change David's perspective on it. He assures him that even through the suffering he is enduring, God is still sovereign and he still loves David can therefore trust him in the pain and hope for the good that will one day come and look forward to being reunited with his child. You know, I look forward to being reunited with my friend Steve and my uh, friend Dan. Saying with David in verse 23 of the chapter, I will go to them but they will not return to me. Yeah. You might be suffering now and it might be partly the result of what you've done. It might be nothing to do with what you've done. God wants you to know that you don't need to bear the guilt of it. We feel guilty even when there's nothing we could have done about it. Moreover, he sees that pain and he's sovereign in it. And he can turn even the hardship we face for good. Now we're going to be quiet now. And we're just going to sit and listen to some music. And then we're going to take communion. And as we do, we are remembering that purging, that cleansing, that forgiveness that Jesus has brought for us. Let's just be quiet and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us.